This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Kate Evans and this is a summer extra edition of The Bookshelf, featuring the now New Zealand crime writer Charity Norman and the American novelist John Darneal. We'll begin with Darneal. He's also a musician from the band The Mountain Goats, and his novels include Wolf in White Van and Universal Harvester. But here we're talking about his latest, Devil House. John Darnell, thanks for speaking to us on the bookshelf. Hey. How would you describe your character, Gage Chandler? Uh, he is an author, uh, a, a moderately successful author uh, who uh, does true crime. Uh, so he's sort of a genre writer who uh, is, uh, doesn't realise when he starts writing the book that he's, he's at a sort of crossroads in the way he thinks about his craft. So what does, what does true crime mean to him? What, why is he drawn to that as a genre? It's, it's just a paycheck as far as we know. He doesn't really talk about uh, what draws it, him to it initially, which is part of what makes him interesting to me, is I sort of think if you want to write nonfiction, crime is sort of one of the biggest places you can go. There's a, there's a number of, you can write historical crime, you can write present crime, you can write lurid crime, you can write sociological crime, there's all kinds of stuff you can do. Um, so he just sort of naturally goes there. He does say early on that one thing he, he tries to do is, uh, is sort of speak for the people who, who can't speak for themselves anymore because they're dead, uh, in his books, that that's sort of his, his area. And as it turns out, uh, whether he's done a good job of that or no, is one of the central questions of the book. And is that because you are drawn to true crime as a genre or you're uncomfortable with it? I mean, what does true crime mean to you? So my own relationship with it is sort of like a journey uh, in that when I was young, I was very gothy, right? And if you are at all gothic, you sort of have to have to like, you have to have some some intersection with crime. Like most goths know something about Jack the Ripper or Peter Curtin or, uh, uh, or any number of his, you know, they, they, they can tell you about the real Dracula and all that um, stuff, you know? Uh, and then, it was very true of a lot of eighties goths that they were also into serial killers. Right. <laughs> Which is a weird, it sort of, it sounds different in 2022 than it did in the eighties to, to, to say people were into serial killers, but they were, they, they sort of would have favorites. And, um, and, and part of this is because a lot of these books are very compelling. If you read the feud Helter Skelter, if you read the Zodiac book, man, the Graysmith book, that's a very, that is a gripping, compelling read. Right. So I read all these things, but, uh, a lot, but I sort of didn't, uh, it also, in music, a lot of people would do things like put a John Wayne Gacy painting on their album cover and stuff like that. And that that always sat wrong with me, you know, or even, you know, the classic example is calling your band Joy Division, right? Uh, well, the Joy Division is the, is the, uh, uh, is, is part of a concentration camp, right? It's a, a not a, it's not funny, right? Um, and so things like that, and sort of the ground, the way that the the rhetorical, ideological ground has shifted in some conversations. I always want to say that for some people, that was never funny. It's like other people noticed, uh, you know, noticed sort of the effect of what they were saying or thinking over time, right? So that that's sort of my relationship to it is, you know, and some of this is just aging, that when you're young, you say, isn't it hilarious that all these crimes happen. And when you're older, you then think, what if they happen to my family? Right. I mean, that, that's normal. It's not, it doesn't mean your younger self was monstrous. It just means that you grew up some, right. And you're poking away at all of that in this novel. But before we get to what you're sort of doing intellectually, back to your character. So 
Gage, as you say, has already published a number of books and for his next one, he's heading to a small town where something happened in the 1980s. Now, this is a real place, isn't it? Yes. Milpitas, California is a place I lived briefly as a child in the mid-70s. Now, Gage buys and moves into a building where a double murder had happened. Now, what does immersing himself into a site, into a place, what does that offer him and his imagination? Well, he, yeah, he talks about this some. He sort of has, he gets a feel for the place. He, he wants to be able to see what it looked like inside there. And I think, you know, I think that's it's almost like a... Um, almost like a musical playing style that some people have a sense of place and some people have a sense of character and some people have a sense of mood. And, and it's really for a writer uh, it's, it's about what gets you inside your theme. Right. Um, For me, it, it, you know, when I'm writing it, 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 it's location is also is very important, but it's more what the location evokes. I don't have to see all the details. Those will come to me just from location names, from the sounds of them. But it varies from writer to writer. And for and for for Gage's deal, the thing that sort of sets him apart is he he likes to to be present at the place. He has a, a sense of of how it looked uh, when when the things that made the place as famous were going on. And as he builds up a sense of this place, he enters into what he describes as the sort of queasy other place of the the internet of buying crime photos of finding the sort of yeah the detritus now that's really interesting isn't it yeah i mean the thing is artifacts are so you know this is very human to me you know if you go if you go to old churches in europe you'll often see relics of the saints right well relics of the saints are gruesome these are bones (laughs) or sometimes they're vials of blood that are said to to reconstitute themselves on the saints day, you know, and, and liquefy. I can't think of whose blood is supposed to do that. I used to know, but yeah, it's, it's, it's more of this sort of um, authenticity, you know, which is a, an incredibly complicated trope uh, to invoke. Right. But, but it's wanting proximity to the thing he's wanting to write about. And, and again, the, the journey of the book is, is, there's a number of different types of proximity. There's physical proximity, but there's also, emotional proximity, you know, or, or, or spiritual proximity. He gets that in part six, right? He gets, he gets actual uh, exposure to the, to the actual effects of the things he's writing about instead of their physical realities, which he does, I think, a fairly good job of, of, uh, of recreating for the reader. But I think the, uh, uh, the deeper reality of, of the meaning of the stuff he's writing about has eluded him until he gets to this book. But the other thing that he is in proximity to, which is really interesting that weaves in and out of the book, is urban myths, rumours, red herrings, panic. What's so interesting to you about the ways in which terrible real events spin off into this sort of wild speculation? Well, part of part of how that comes to to be in this book is that when I lived in Milpitas, I had a neighbour named Darla, who was a young, you know, I was seven and so was she. And and Darla would would tell the wildest stories about a woman down the block whose leg grew so large that it it came jutting out through the front door, and you know because she'd been ensorcelled or bewitched or whatever, so her leg got to be as big as a three story apartment building or something like that. And and I remember the day when like I think that was the story. I went, I, well, come on, <laughs> there's nobody who can have a leg that big, you know. And she said, Oh no, all my stories are true. And I thought, what an amazing thing to say. <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, I'm also, I'm a very, I, I always, I'm never sure I'm using this word right, credulous, a person who believes things a lot, you know, it's very, very easy to get me to believe something. Uh, I, I don't 
When somebody tells me something, I do not instinctively say, oh, they must be lying. I, I have to be told right later, oh, that person's not telling you the truth. And I don't believe it. I'm very, I'm a trusting person uh, by nature, which is a little weird, but it's true. And so all the urban legends, when I hear them from the earliest, I would hear them, you know, I just, I just would think, wow, well, well that changes the whole nature of, of reality, I guess. But but that must be true, you know. It, now I'm I'm 55 now, so I'm more likely if I hear something to be a little more questioning. But it has taken me years to get to that point. For the most part, anything you tell me about any any wild cr- crime, I will buy for the longest time. And I think a lot of people are like that still. You know, it's like when you hear some gruesome detail, there's something in your mind that instantly goes, "Well, that that's true." I guess. I mean, it's may, may it might be a survival instinct to go like, "Look, if that is true, it will be dangerous for you in the world, so you should know that that's true." But yeah, so so I I do think a lot of that. I think we were talking a, a interview I just did about uh, the the sort of Venn diagram of of. Uh, uh, urban legend and conspiracy theory, right? Which is uh, sort of uh, enjoying a high tide right now. Uh, and and they share some space, right? They, they certainly do. But what I'm interested in is, even though you sort of paint yourself as somebody who's credulous, as a, as a reader, we're um, in this book, I think we're testing the stories all the time and we're seeing them shaped before us, particularly in the story that Gage had written earlier about where a woman had killed two teenagers, apparently in self-defence. Now, her story appears in a very intimate way, like you've written it differently. She's addressed as you, and we really enter into her life. Now, why? What what were you wanting to do there? So there's a couple of things uh, going on there. One, and this is like the least glamorous answer, but it's true, uh, when I knew that I had a big story I wanted to tell, then the first question is structure, right? Um, I'm not, I'm not writing like Kerouac. I'm not just typing and hoping it comes to have a shape. I'm, I'm, I'm outlining, right? So I said, well, how, how many people am I going to have telling this story uh, besides just the narrator, or maybe it is just the narrator? I, I had all these questions, and this is sort of the most luxurious point of writing a book for me is when all these ideas are kicking around and I write them down on a chalkboard or in notebooks or in, or in files that I then can't find, you know, and, and, uh, but I came up with an idea for a structure for it to have seven parts, right? Cause seven is a, 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 a number that's not divisible by two. So, so I got this idea that they would, they would mirror each other. Part one would mirror part seven, part two would mirror part six, part three would mirror part five, and then part four would stand alone. Well, this may not be exciting to everybody. But it was very exciting to me. Right. It was like, I thought, oh, I like that idea. I like because then because then then the sections can answer each other, you know, then any questions raised can be responded to in some way, which sometimes in a book is a problem is you sort of wind up making an assertion and you sort of go, where's the room to question this, you know, uh, to, to show that I see what the questions are, you know, that, that this raises. So I did that. And then I well, I thought it's not enough to have seven parts. They have to be distinct. Right. How, how will they assert? their own personality. And that's when I got the idea to make parts one and seven in the first person, parts two and six in the second person, parts three and five in the third person, then have part four be something different. It was at that point, sort of the luck of the draw that part two was going to be uh, Jana Perez's story, right? Um, or or a Diana Crane's story. Um, and so I was already thinking, oh, this will be in the second person, uh, part two will be. And then I thought, well, that also helps me say that he sort of made a name for himself as a, as a writer with his own style, because that would be a very unusual true crime book to be written entirely in the second person, right? So, uh, so yeah, so that's how that, that's the process behind that becoming that. And then I found pretty quickly while I was writing it, 
that if you are addressing somebody that way and you know something terrible happens to the character, it wakes up the compassionate part of yourself. Really, it, it raises questions about writing that I'm like, I'm addressing this person to whom I am going to do an awful thing. Right um, now, of course, it's an imaginary person, but it still feels pretty real when you're living and dying with it every day. You know, wake up and go to sleep thinking about this person. So, so yeah. So for me, it proved a very effective way of, of going in. It did make me wonder: is like, what, what would a one thousand page book in the second person be like? You know. And it means that we engage both with that compassionate engagement, but because of that mirroring and revisiting the story from another perspective, it means that we get right to the heart of. I guess the ethical questions of writing to true crime, what are the ethics and responsibilities of it? What happens when you write about real people? Is that at the heart of the book or is that an aside? I mean, how important was it for you that people grapple with that? I think that's the big question about the, I mean, I think that's one level of the big question is like when you're telling stories about people, what do you leave out? Right. What are well, you're necessarily going to leave something out. You know, um, you can't tell everybody's story from from everybody's perspective, nor nor should you in many stories. But but, you know, in a story of of where somebody got murdered, you know, uh, you're telling a story of a, at least one ruined life, but probably lots. You know, uh, a person doesn't become a murderer capriciously. You know, uh, most murderers are, are some pretty sad stories themselves. Are they more sad than the stories of their victims? No, necessarily. No. But that doesn't, you know, unless you're pretty cold hearted, you know, it's like when a person reaches that point, it's a waste of a human life and a human life is a precious thing, you know. So so this is the question is like when you tell these stories, sort of what do you it makes the book sound less fun to read than it is, I think. But, you know, what do you do to the world when you when you tell a story like that? If you tell a story like that for the lurid thrill of 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 getting the the details of the crime out there, what do you what, what do you do? What do you add to the to the stream? You know, uh, and the thing is, this is a this is a problem. Not just this is where the book is not really about true crime, because this is the problem with telling stories at all, right? That when you tell a story, you assert something about the world, and when you assert any one thing, something else doesn't get asserted, right? It is, is necessary, right? That's just the nature of discourse, right? So, and that's what's complicated about storytelling is that you're going to wind up asserting that one thing is more important than another thing. You can't help but do that if you choose to tell a story. Complicated Storytelling with musician and writer John Darneal for this summer edition of The Bookshelf. His latest novel, with a complicated structure and a true crime author at its heart, is called Devil House. John, if you were to place Devil House on a bookshelf next to antecedents or inspirations, books that might have fed into it in some way, or even books that sit counter to it, what would be on that shelf for you? So that's a very, very good question. And I'll tell you why, because I do have a shelf with my books on it. And I do think about, not super intentionally, but I'm I'm aware of the company that that they're keeping up there. So like there's Devil House, there's Universal Harvester. Here's William Gass, a writer I look up to. Here's Jose Saramago, absolute master of the craft. Tell us more about William Gass. Oh, William Gass, people who write good sentences are special to me because everything happens in the sentence, right? That's the sentence is how we get wherever we're trying to go. 
Gas's love of words and the sentences. It sounds dry to say that, right? A lot of the things that I'm interested in sound dry when you talk about them, but aren't dry in practice. Oh, and right? it's not dry when we read, when we write to think about beautiful sentences. That's not dry. Right. That's thrilling, isn't it? So, yeah. So, Gas is, I mean, his sentences are absolutely, I can just turn to, uh, but yeah, like here were ruins of a Franciscan priory and a mill attached to the same, the water of which roared down a back hatch, like the voice of desolation. Burr, no wonder, I'm in that empty country. God save us all from our fancies and the shapeless night. You can open gas at random. Now, I don't know what he's talking about in that, in that paragraph. That's literally just a random extract. But the more you slow down your reading with gas, the sort of the more, the more you aware you become of the magic and the dignity of language, you know, and, and, but also he's absolutely insistent on using it for, you know, for profane purposes or for dirty limericks in, in the tunnel, you know, and which is something that's interesting to a lot of the writers that I admire is like, they want to do something sort of dour with it. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that, but the people I read are interested by that and, and, and sort of, and, and, and that's interesting to me. So so yeah, the tunnel was a big book for me. It was it, it opened up the possibilities for books. Uh, John Daniel, thank you so much for speaking to us today. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you for having me. John Daniel's Devil House is published by Scribe. I'm Kate Evans, and on this summer extra edition of RN's The Bookshelf, we'll turn now to New Zealand novelist Charity Norman, whose books include After the Fall, The Secrets of Strangers, and the one to which we've attached this conversation. Remember me. Charity Norman, thank you so much for speaking to us on the bookshelf. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. You're speaking to us from New Zealand, but we can tell from your accent that you haven't always lived there. So how did you come to be in New Zealand? Uh, you're right, I haven't always lived here. Um, I was born in Uganda, but lived most of my life in England in various um, parts, both in the northeast and in London. And um, I was a barrister up in the near York um, for about 14 or 15 years. And I had three small children and my husband, who's a New Zealander, was looking after them. And one day it occurred to us that these three children that I'd had in very quick succession had barely met me. I'd leave early in the morning, come home late at night. So we decided to try a role reversal. And that meant cutting and pasting ourselves from um, the northeast of England to central Hawke's Bay in New Zealand, which we did. And it was only supposed to be for a short time while we tried it out. But um, 20 years this year, we're still here. (laughs) Now, that background as a barrister. So you've got this background in law and now you write crime fiction. How do you understand the relationship between those two aspects of yourself? There is undoubtedly a relationship, although I thought of myself as somebody who might like to tell stories and write books before I became a barrister. Um, But it was just enormously helpful. I I, I now see um, that work that I did for um, a long time, both criminal and family law and mediation. Um, It was useful partly because you you get ideas and um, for plots for both criminal and other sorts of stories, crime stories and other stories, but also because you meet people in all kinds of situations. You meet people in crisis and people who are going through extremes. And um, later on, when you look back on all of that, um, it's quite a it's quite fallow ground for a writer, I think. 
Let's move on to this novel of yours, Remember Me. So a woman named Emily returns to New Zealand after many years away to check in on her father, Felix. Now, what does she discover about him when she gets there? Well, she knows that he has dementia because somebody's phoned her up and told her that, but she doesn't really know what that means at all until she gets there and gets out of the car and realises that for a few moments he doesn't even recognise her. He's completely baffled and he's polite to her, but he doesn't know who she is. And as she goes into his house, her home, her family home, she realises that um, he's leaving notes everywhere for himself. He's um, having to remind himself how to do things, how to get to places that he knows well. So he's he, his, his dementia, in fact, it's Alzheimer's, is far more advanced than she ever thought. Um, and he needs a lot more care than she realised when she, when she came. She intends to come for only three weeks and um, rather like me 20 years ago, ends up staying considerably longer than that. But this whole, well, I guess the double context, both of her returning to her childhood home, but also his Alzheimer's, means that we're in the domain of memory and forgetting what can and can't be said and the whole question of secrets. I mean, that's the very heart of crime fiction, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is really, isn't it? Yes, I think it's uh, in in many respects at the very heart of um, the human experience um, to a lesser, lesser or greater degree, all of us have things that we barely know about ourselves, um, let alone want others to know about us. And um, that's certainly at the heart of crime fiction, and it's at the heart of this story. But as so often in crime fiction in this novel, there's a mystery from the past to deal with, something that happened when Emily was in her late teens. So what had happened? 25 years previously, Emily's neighbour and friend, family friend, Uh, whose name is Leia Parata, who is about uh, in her mid-20s, and she was a conservationist, um, a a celebrated scientist, and she had gone off hiking in the Ruahini Ranges, which is the range of mountains close by to where Felix Kirkland and all the characters in this novel live. So she'd gone off hiking there. It's a real place. I live under the ranges myself. And um, Sorry, so whereabouts is that in New Zealand for for those of us who aren't there? This is on the, um, yes, fair enough. This is on the, in the North Island, on the East Coast, about halfway up in Hawke's Bay. And so Leia, this young woman, she went hiking into the mountains one day and she never came back. Never returned. And before she left, she stopped to buy a bar of chocolate from our protagonist, Emily, who was then quite a young woman working in the local petrol station, And Leia was a bit older than her. Um, So she stopped to buy chocolate, had a chat. And Emily was the last person ever to see her, as far as anybody knows. Leia drove off from the fuel station that day, never to be seen again. They never found, they found a car, but they didn't find any trace of her at all, despite combing the ranges for weeks looking for her. And that's not unheard of. People do sometimes disappear without trace into New Zealand's backcountry. So you've brought together family stories, secrets, a small town, the obligations placed on women as carers, uh, Mm. guilt. So what I'm interested in, I guess, is where you might sit this novel of yours on a bookshelf of other novels or influences or 
antecedents or just favourites. I mean, what would you sit next to this book of yours, Remember Me? I think top of my list, although I don't want to um, sound as though I think my book's in any way the same kind of league as, you know, as those antecedents, those those um, novelists who've inspired me. But um, I think top of my list on the bookshelf would be um, the works of Daphne du Maurier, Rebecca, for example. What do you like about du Maurier? She tells a rollicking good story, doesn't she? And she tells it well, and she tells it without letting the language get in the way of a fine story. Her, her language is, is exquisite, and she describes everything uh, and everybody with a, a humanity and a wit and a wisdom um, that you can feel, you can sort of feel her intellect shining through, but you, you never feel that the words are getting in the way of the story with de Maurier. And I, I, I think she's um, quite brilliant in that sense. That would be that would be one influence. I mean, I began to read the Bronte sisters when I was really young, and that sort of gothic mystery. You know, when you discover that the noises Jane Eyre has been hearing are somebody's wife <laughs> up in the attic, you know, the, in this big house. You know, again, as you say, a house with secrets and uh, um, haunted. Uh, sort of characters who are desperately trying to move on with life, but who can't escape their past. So I think those were um, influences, wittingly or otherwise. And when I was writing about what happened in the mountains, I had just read a book by Joe Simpson, who wrote Touching the Void, um, which was made into a documentary film. Um, and Joe Simpson is a mountaineer who um, has climbed mountains all over the world and who famously um, had an appalling injury and, and had to crawl his way out. It took days and he was lucky to escape. But he wrote a, a fiction novel, a short one called The Sound of Gravity. And in it, he evokes the, the isolation and that echoing mysticism of mountains with uh, extraordinary power. What else would be up on that top shelf of yours in in any genre and whether you'd want to cite it as an influence or not, but just those books that have shaped you, those ones that you really remember the impact they had on you? It was a very long time ago that I first read it. I think I was about seven, was Richard Adams' Watership Down. And it, I know it's a cliche to come out with that, but um, that had an enormous impact on me as a small child. I was a very lonely child. My I'm, I'm the youngest of seven, but my siblings had mostly left home or worked away at school. And my family had um, recently moved from Yorkshire to inner city Birmingham, where I didn't know anybody and I'd left my best friend behind and I hated school. And I discovered this book, uh, Watership Down, and I read it again and again and again. And I remember reading for the first time the description of a landscape just as a storm is about to break. It's it, in a way, it has echoes of, of the book I was talking about before, Joe Simpson's book, The Sound of Gravity. Richard Adams managed to evoke this, in a children's book, managed to evoke that sort of crystalline clarity and watchfulness in the air, just as the storm was about to break. 
And I remember reading that and thinking, I know what you mean. I felt that. That's exactly how it feels in my garden when the storm is coming. And that, that wonderful moment where you feel as though somebody's reached out and communicated with you was really, was really um, valuable for me, was really um, magical. Charity Norman, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I love hearing these writers talking not just about their own books, but the books they've read, been inspired by, see as touchstones, just delicious. Charity Norman there, whose latest is Remember Me. I'm Kate Evans. Join me all through summer for reading recommendations, books and more books, both new and rereads. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.